Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and colleague, Alexa Tollett. Alexa, what's new? Um, not much, Yoel. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, so we were chatting pre-show, and uh, we each have a question to ask the other. And I'm going to make you go first. Okay, my question for you is, what did you dress up as for Halloween? Oh, okay. Uh, so <laughs> I, I went over um, to Mickey and Slick's house, uh, former... Uh, and sometime current uh, Four Beers Pod co-host, and handed out candy. But I was just in a hurry, and I didn't get a costume together. So what they did is they gave me this top hat that looked a little bit like— you've seen the video for the Guns N' Roses song, November Rain, right? Oh, that sounds vaguely familiar. So he gets up on this piano. He's wearing a top uh-huh, hat in okay. the video. Yeah, that's, that's sort of what I looked like, except without any hair. <laughs> okay. That that sounds like almost a costume. I really just asked so that I could talk about my costume. I figured that was that was why. Uh, <laughs> please, uh, what was your costume? Um, so, have you watched the um, teen Netflix show Heartstoppers? I am hearing about it for the first time now from you. Okay. Well, um, basically, it's like uh, like a teen drama. Um, that is based on a graphic novel, and it's it's essentially about these like two high school boys falling in love, um, and so Megan and I went as these two high school boys. So like when we were watching the show, um, I was like, "Hey, he has kind of like curly brown hair like you, and this guy has like floppy blondish hair and looks kind of like a golden retriever." And sometimes people say, "I look like a golden retriever." This is perfect, um, and it's a very like a heartwarming show. So, um, so yeah, we basically just dressed up as like prep school boys. Um, but one thing that the uh, graphic novel does, I guess, and then the show sort of like does a shout out to the gra- graphic novel um, by like showing like, like leaves or hearts or things when there's like emotions going on. So we like stuck leaves to ourselves. Yeah. Well, that sounds very cute and wholesome. I'm worried that people say you look like a golden retriever because I, I don't think that's very nice. <laughs> it's been like quite a long time since that. That might be like something that I, I still remember from high school, but I didn't take it too badly. Like <laughs> That's just your personality. You're just very nice, <laughs> like a golden retriever. <laughs> okay. Uh, so my question for you, if I say the words, mastodon migration to you what does that mean um i'm picturing a lot of mastodons mastodi um traveling very quickly in a group possibly this is like uh uh there was has been some kind of natural disaster and this is like in i don't know when did when did mastodons live do they still are they still alive? they're gone right oh uh, yeah i think they're extinct okay yeah so basically nothing. I'm I'm completely imagining the situation other than having a vague idea of what a Mastodon looks like. Well, I think that's, that's a very good answer, given that you had this sprung on you with, with no warning. So this is, uh, I think this, this is informative um, because I don't know if you heard uh, Elon Musk bought Twitter. I did hear that. I knew that. You knew that, right? That's like- I'm up, I'm up on the Twitter news. It's been in the news. You know, people are talking about it. And as part of this, I, I guess uh, either people are upset specifically about the Elon thing, or they just think this is like a good moment to do this and they wanted to do this anyway. But some prominent open science folks, so for example, Brian Nosek, are promoting a move away from Twitter to this 
other decentralized social networking thing called Mastodon. So that all right, all right. trying to get everybody to quit Twitter and go to Mastodon. And I'm just like, um, much as I like the idea, inherently skeptical about getting everybody to switch to a different social network. It's like, yeah, okay, like this like circle of 20 nerds knows about it. But what do the normies think? And so obviously I had to ask you. Okay, so my first question is like, uh, if we could get everybody onto Mastodon, would you agree that it's a better platform? So is is its main strength that Elon Musk is not in charge or does it have other virtues? It's decentralized and not for profit, um, okay. which I think is good kind of philosophically or politically. It might be bad in terms of like usability or reliability. I guess I I think I would be excited about the idea. I mean, I did I did make an account on a Mastodon server, um, but uh, I just feel like just for the regular people, it's going to be too much of a pain in the ass, and it's not going to work well enough. That's that's my prediction. Uh, I guess like I guess it would depend on why you use Twitter, and like maybe it's hard for me to answer this question because I don't really. So it's sort of hard for me to say like, oh, this this um, new platform would serve my needs better. Like I think that if you are um, using Twitter mostly to like follow like famous people or celebrities or something like that, then like probably switching to this new system is not going to serve you well unless all of those famous people switch as well. Um, I can see how you could get like a like a small community within an academic discipline, like, you know, like an open science group to move there. Um, and that they could be still getting what they want to get out of Twitter or getting what they want to get out of social media from this new platform. But I guess, yeah, I don't know. It depends on, um, yeah, on what you want. Yeah. So I, I think that's supposed to be the idea, right? That it's like kind of open science or sciencey folks who are all going to go be someplace else now. But I, for me, at least, like I follow some of those people, but then I also follow, you know, pictures of dogs and like, I can't get that on Mastodon at all. So I feel like it Not already has, well, I mean, you know, to be fair, I haven't Surely looked. the dogs <laughs> maybe, maybe the dogs are on Mastodon too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just, uh. Dogs are everywhere. Yeah. Internet, yeah. Know. No, you're, that's a good point. That's a good, I, I shouldn't knock it until I've done an exhaustive search for the pictures of dogs account. Uh-huh. Yep. All right. Well, so I'll be seeing you on there, I take it. Absolutely. I'm going to finally give this short form social media type of thing a try. I mean, this is, if there is a time, I feel like this is it. So uh, shall we talk about what we are drinking? Um, Okay. I am drinking. I bought this beer purely based on what I think is a cool looking can. So it's like uh, one of these tall cans with a mostly black label with these um, diamond-shaped images of pumpkins and a latte and, I think, cookie crumbles, which um, makes sense because this beer is called Can I Get a Pumpkin Spice Cappuccino Topped with Cookies and Cream? It sounds disgusting to me, honestly, but I just like couldn't resist. Um, That's amazing. That sounds utterly horrible. It sounds horrible, right? Um, and I think I'm trying to... I think that this brewery is called, I'm having a hard time figuring out what this brewery is called, actually. Oh, Evil Twin Brewing, yeah, in um, North Haven, Connecticut. Okay, well, I was sure that I was going to have the worst beer because I'm <laughs> I'm drinking a can of Corona. And I was like, there's no way that she can come in at under a can of Corona, but I think you've pulled it off. 
All right. So as we take a sip of our beers, I want us to both come up with a number from one to 10 that we would rate our beers and then we'll say them at the same time and we'll see who loses. Okay. Sounds good. All right. So this is from, from one to 10, right? One is yep. the worst, 10 is the best. Uh huh. I mean, I already know what I would give a Corona, but, but I'm going to just, to take it seriously, I'm yeah. actually going to sip it. Okay. Okay. What? Ready? ready? Four. Three, two, one. Shit. <laughs> three. <laughs> okay. I was going to say three. I promise. Right, so so uh, <laughs> we, we believe you. So I, I come in one point higher. Yep. You did it. Three is not very, three is not very good. I mean, I chose a beer that I knew I wasn't going to like. Yeah, that's true. You did make mistakes. <laughs> why are you why are you drinking corona uh i don't know i i got the, these to take over to mickey's actually for for the halloween thing and i was just in the lcbo and it's like corona that feels summery it's sort of the end of uh-huh. fall here you know i just like i don't know it was a is a, a poorly considered choice in retrospect they're just not that good but i like coronas most than the average person actually i would definitely give a corona more than a for although I prefer Corona lights, actually. I see. I they didn't have those. Um, I was gonna give it a five, but then when I tried it, I was like, actually, this is like sort of a weird, gross aftertaste. I don't know. Maybe it's just yep. this. Yeah. You know, no, that's just Corona. I I just forgotten. I just forgotten yeah. that aftertaste. I was like, yeah, I got to knock off a point for that. <laughs> yeah, it's nice in theory. Well, you don't have a lime, so I I it's don't. Not really yeah, fair. no, yeah. I I only have lemons. I could put a slice of lemon in it. Is that is that? No, 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 that's, that's unacceptable. All right. We're not going to do that. All right. So Alexa, speaking of making choices, um, uh-huh. possibly uh, <laughs> making choices poorly, what are we talking about today? Um, yeah. So I wanted to talk about graduate admissions today, um, which has been on my mind because uh, people are applying to graduate programs around now. Um, yeah. I think our deadline is, is close to now. Um, and so, yeah, I was curious. This has been like something that I think... Um, is both on my mind because it's the season in academia, but also there's been like a few things in the news um, lately and like over the past couple of years um, in terms of discussions around how graduate admissions and college admissions generally should work. Um, So I thought we could talk about things like how we make these decisions and how our programs make these um, admissions decisions and also maybe sort of get at questions like what the ideal way that these decisions would be made and, you know, what criteria we would include and what we're actually going for and stuff like that. Um, Sounds great. All right. So maybe first question um, for you, Yoel, what are you looking for when you um, select graduate students? GPA, um, mm-hmm. GRE, when we used to have them. Um, mm-hmm. And then I ask for people to send me a writing sample if they have it. And so I feel like those are kind of direct ability measures that correspond pretty closely to what people are going to need to do. Um, and grades is sort of an obvious one. Um, and then I'm looking for, you know, specifically, did they do well in the methods and stats classes? Um, because that can be like a stumbling block for people. And I want somebody who's yeah. right shown that they can do well at that. Um, and then for the for the GRE, the way I used to use them was a sort of a floor. So if they're too low, that's at least a red flag. And then also mm-hmm. to sometimes pick out people um, who might be from 
a less well-known school um, or who might have some other thing in their record that looks like uh, maybe a problem. But if they have a really awesome GRE, then I'm like, let's give this person another look. Um, and then the the writing sample is pretty pretty self evident. Like if if they've you know done like an honors thesis, right? And I like the studies and I like how they write about them, then that you know that's really good that because that's basically is what they're going to be doing, right? So I think the closer it is to the thing that they're going to be doing in grad school, the more the more informative it is. Um, I try to weight interviews very little, um, mm. so, so I I try to just get a sense for like. Does this person seem like a just totally crazy weirdo? Um, yeah, and, and and that's it. Uh, which which can be tough, um, but but that's how I try and do it. What about you? Uh, so I find this um, really tricky. I think that I think that what I do is I definitely consider um, GPA. Um, I think GPA is like a good. I see it as a good indicator of like conscientiousness, um, and also maybe like. Uh, interest in school or something like that. And so um, for something like the GRE, that's a one-off. I, I don't think that the GRE is useless, um, but the, like the consistency or the, the like fact that the GPA takes into account more information is, is interesting to me. Um, yeah. I mean, I read things like recommendation letters, but I don't think that I put much weight on them. Um and I don't ask for a writing sample. I read their research statement or their personal statement, I guess. Um, and yeah, try to get a sense from that and their CV, like what their experience is. Um, and yeah, I guess try to to get a sense of whether they know what they are trying to get into and whether I think they will, yeah, be good at it and enjoy it. Um but I think that over time, I have, um, maybe it's because the students in my lab tend to be more interested in um, teaching, and they often are like pretty interested in teaching heavy jobs and things like that, um, that I am less sort of like looking for signs that they're going to pump out publications. And I think that's how our admissions process, like what it typically selects for or is trying to select for, um, and more like, yeah, are they going to, are they going to enjoy their time here? Are they going to like find this process fun? Are they, yeah. Are they going to, um, be able to like feel successful at the end of it and get a job that they would like? I mean, that seems extremely altruistic because it, maybe you do this differently, but for me, like I'm investing a lot in each student and obviously mm -hmm. I don't want them to have a terrible time, but what I get out of it is that we publish papers together, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I have students who've gone into, you know, some who've gone into uh, like a research-heavy academic kind of job, some who've gone into government or industry, um, some who are interested in teaching, right? So it's like, it's not like I insist on that, but like the goal really for me, like the reason I have them uh -huh. is we're supposed to be publishing together, right? And if it's just like, well, have a good time and then go teach, then that's nice for you, but I, then I don't get anything out of it. Yeah. So is it that you like want to get publications? Like, is that, is that important to you or is it that you want like a research collaborator? Both, I guess. I know. Well, actually, you know what? I, I have plenty of collaborators. 
So I think that's that's a that's an overly impression managing answer, right? If I was just like looking for collaborators, like I have people that I know who are like at my level who I have collaborated with in the past, who I know from like grad school or whatever. Like, I mean, you and I could collaborate if we really wanted to, right? Like, I, d- I don't have a shortage. <laughs> no. We really held our noses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if it was like a desperate situation, okay? Imagine <laughs> aliens land on Earth and they're like, we're going to kill everybody <laughs> unless the two of you publish together. Well, I guess we we might do that in that case. Um, anyway. Yeah, there's, there's there's people I can collaborate with and 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 do. The reason to have grad students is that they enable you to do more stuff. Like if they're good, right? You can farm out things to them, and you don't have to do them yourself. Yeah, I mean, I certainly do that. I I rely on my grad students to do a lot of stuff, um, but I also think that I am not as motivated to get publications as I was before I had tenure. Um, and there's still like something enjoyable about that process to me. Um, and I, I think it's obviously it's relevant to me getting full professor um, at some point if I try to do that. Um, but that's really not a high priority to me. And so I guess like the, the value in publishing papers to me is sort of the process. Like that's, that's like what I like about it. And so if I have students who, you know, like enjoy that and, um, like find it interesting and we can, you know, come up with cool questions to ask and stuff like that, then I, I am not that concerned about, I guess, quantity or like prestige, except insofar as they need those things to get their next job. Cause like, what am I, who am I trying to impress at this point? So like if somebody showed up and they just like say worked really slowly, but they seemed happy, <laughs> that would be okay. I think it would. I mean, there's, I, I can get annoyed with grad students for like saying they're going to get things done and they don't get them done. Um, but if they said like, you know, it's going to take me a while to get this done. I don't know. I mean, I don't think that my grad students, like I don't have grad students right now who fall into that category. So, so I don't really know, I guess. Um, I have, I have like definitely gotten frustrated with students in the past where I feel like, yeah, they're consistently not getting their work done, dropping the ball. But um, yeah, like part of that feels like a, I've never had that coincide with somebody who's like, I'm really enjoying this. And like, I'm getting what I need to out of this situation. And I respect you and I'm treating you with respect. Right, right. So if somebody is like really upfront and is like, you know, I don't like to work too hard. I do like to think about ideas and read papers. Occasionally I'll run (laughs) a study, but it will take me a while. (laughs) Then you'd be like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that sounds okay to me. Um, yeah, but I mean, maybe maybe you still like you believe in research a little bit more than I do. Like maybe you're like, I'm putting this um, important stuff out in the world, and I need help with it, and I need my help to be good. Yeah, that is kind of how I feel. I'm I'm surprised that we haven't discovered this yet. That that's not how you feel because I kind of assumed that was how you felt. Mm. I, th- I can feel that way about research, but I just don't, um, I don't know. Uh, maybe the ideas that I get really excited about are more, like, fewer and far between, farther between than they were before. I feel like if we have any, you know, uh, potential applicants listening, they should totally apply to work with you. It sounds great. <laughs> you don't have to do anything. Alexa's super nice, you know? It's like, what a dream job, right? <laughs> 
I mean, I guess you'll graduate potentially without any publications, but as long as you're cool with that, it sounds amazing. Yeah, which I mean, obviously is not cool with a lot of people. So I'm not like a good fit for somebody who wants an advisor who is going to be like, you know, um, like, yeah, really like kicking them in the butt to publish a bunch and um, putting them on a bunch of projects and stuff. Right, right. So are you like more... Sorry, this is such a tangent, but are are you like more? This projects are kind of student directed. Like you wouldn't give somebody something to work on. You would wait for them to come up with something that they're excited to work on. For the most part, unless I have some kind of funding, um, then yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, let, let's get back on track a little bit. Um, All right. <laughs> not that this tangent wasn't very illuminating. So, <laughs> uh, I'm curious whether. There's anything about the kind of process of uh, screening, interviewing, and admitting people that you would want to change? Like, let's say you're a department dictator, you get to institute your will. Is there anything you would do differently? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually, okay, so um, I looked at my department's statement on the UA, like graduate admissions page, to see what they say we are doing. Um, and it says, that uh, applicants are evaluated holistically. Um, admission is influenced by the overall quality of the applicant's record, including grades, letters of recommendation, research experience, and clinical experience for the clinical program only. Um, and we seek applicants who show promise in becoming leading researchers in the field. And, you know, like our our um, admissions process is very, um, I think, typical. So, you know, people submit uh um, statement of interest and their transcripts and we look at their DPA. We no longer require GREs, so I usually don't see that. Sometimes people submit them anyways um, and we, we don't like blind that or like we don't eliminate that information, so sometimes I see that. Um, and yeah, I mean I I guess my answer is it feels like we're this process is inadequate in some ways. Like I don't, first of all, I don't feel like I know whether people will like grad school, whether they'll be good at it, whether they will get along with me um, or vice versa. Um, But I don't know how to make it better. Like I don't know how to make those decisions better. And I mean, the the grad students that have are awesome. So maybe it's like working just fine. Um, But it, it feels like the process is sort of like, I feel like I'm just um, in the dark a little bit, but I don't. I don't have a lot of insight into how you could do a better job of choosing people. Yeah, I mean that just seems like intrinsically such a hard problem. Like they don't know whether they're going to like yeah. it, right. There's just too much right. unknown. So like, uh-huh. how are you going to predict that? Do you think that you're good at it? Like, and can you look at the? I don't know. Look back over the decisions that you've made and been like. Oh yeah, I sort of knew in this case that this wouldn't work out that well. Or like, do you have do you have a good record? Do you think? Uh, that's awkward because if I'm like, well, you know, specifically these people are total disappointing failures. Um, no, I'm I'm really happy with the people I've chosen. I obviously don't have the counterfactual. Like, there's plenty of people that I I passed over. Maybe they would have been equally amazing. Um, but uh, I like all my current and past students, and they've typically done well. Um, I do have things that I would change about the process just more, more broadly. Um, so we do something, I guess, kind of similar, um, to what you guys do. Uh, we 
ask for uh, GPA. We ask for letters. We used to uh, ask for GRE. We don't anymore. Um, and and uh, a statement of interest. So I would like to just cut the letters entirely because yeah, I'm I'm fine with that. Yeah, they're so they're they're terrible. Like they terrible is way too strong. But they're you don't. I'm not convinced that they're at all informative. First of all, no, right? I can't get any information from letters. Maybe other, maybe other people are better at reading. People say things like, "Oh, you have to look for what the person doesn't say," and I'm like. I don't know how to do that. How do you like, do it, Rashad? How do you do that? <laughs> um, that sounds like a Zed Cohen or something. Yeah, right. Right. Um, so, yeah, and I, I, I suppose, like, let's say you had from the same person 20 letters about 20 different students. Maybe then you could calibrate and be like, oh, yeah. now now I get it. Right, this is a mediocre letter for this person. But I don't have that, right? I just have a letter from a person. So, like, I find them to be really not that useful. There are a ton of work for faculty to write and submit. Um, uh-huh. uh, students, per- prospective you know, PhD students have to invest a lot in order to get letters from faculty. So if we're talking about the costs of things, like usually it entails like working for them for free for mm-hmm. a long time, right? Like, uh-huh. you know, if you, if you just imagine what could that person make by doing a regular job for those hours, that's a good amount of money, right? And uh-huh. and obviously, like somebody who's excited about our grad school isn't going to be doing it only for the letter, but that that is a big motivation, right? Um, mm-hmm. is, is you need the letters. Uh, and yeah, I just, I, I don't see that they're informative. So that's, that's one thing that I would nix. Um, and then the other thing that I would nix would be um, this emphasis on in-person interviews, which we do mm-hmm. still do, like quite a bit of interviewing, and I think mm-hmm. people vary in like how much they care about that. But like I said already, I I don't find them to be informative. Like somebody might come off poorly because they're nervous. Somebody might come off really well because they've practiced, but then it, that doesn't really correspond to the skills that you need in grad school. Like mm-hmm. if if anything, it's the awkward nerds you know, who are not good at talking to people uh-huh. that, that I kind of want, like, those are, those are my people. Do you think that you could choose those people in interviews or do you have like too much of a bias towards like, oh, this person is socially skilled and charming. And so like, I therefore like them. Yeah. I can't get. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't. Yeah. I don't think it's possible to do the process in reverse. Like, I think the best I can do is like ignore them as much as I can. But I think like everybody else, I'm biased by, you know, um, attractiveness, eloquence, charm, uh-huh. uh, yeah. conversational ability. Like, uh-huh. do those, those don't have to do with success as a researcher, or at least they shouldn't. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't like them. Yeah. And I think that anxiety is like people's anxiety in these things is huge. And I think it totally disguises their actual, um, actual abilities you know, like I had a, one of like, um, one of my grad students who is now in her first year in a tenure track job. Um, when she came and interviewed, I I don't think she would mind me talking about this. Um, but she was so, so shy and I think quite anxious and I barely got to know her during the interview. And I was like, I just like, I have no idea what she's like. And, and it was, Basically, like, despite that, that I um, ended up giving her the offer 
Um, so sort of like you're describing, I tried to just sort of like ignore that or ignore the fact that I hadn't learned anything about her from that process. She's an amazing grad student. Like, I'm really glad that I ignored the fact that she hated that interview process and, you know, like clearly wasn't comfortable the whole time. Yeah, I think interviews, unless they're just really incredibly red flag, should just be ignored. Would you eliminate interviews? So, like, would you select someone without having done any kind of interview? I would want to talk to them just to make sure that they don't seem crazy. What, like, what is the kind of person that you're trying to to screen out? Like, somebody who's going to be really like hostile or cause a lot of problems? Or... Yeah, somebody who is like has like a bizarre social deficit. So, like, actual like social serious social impairment or like mentally ill. Like, a little weird is great. A little like autistic is fine. That's totally cool. But like, you know, somebody who's like really going to cause problems and be like difficult to get along with. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I'm i sure that you can't detect all or probably even most of those people yeah. in a half hour interview. Right. But you can yeah, detect the yeah. most flagrantly crazy ones who can't even keep it, you know, together for 30 minutes. Yeah, I guess I, I, I have the same intuition. Like, I think that I would feel uncomfortable completely eliminating interviews and... Yeah, I do feel like I can tell something about a person from talking to them for 30 minutes that I can't get from reading their writing or looking at their record or whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if my feeling that I am gleaning important information from this and like figuring people out is accurate. But this is like a like twofold statement. It's like partly are people in general able to do that? And partly I question my own abilities. Like, I think that I'm a bad judge of character with short amounts of time. Yeah. I mean, I think people in general are that. Um, and yeah, I, the base rates of somebody being like totally crazy are so low that you might be like, well, it's not, it's not worth it to do this whole rigmarole in order to catch these like very rare individuals. But I would say the cost of having one of them is extremely high. And so like, maybe it is worth it. Yeah. Right, right, right. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. We are not on Mastodon yet. If I you know, well, yeah, maybe by maybe by next episode, if uh, you know this migration actually ends up happening. Uh, in the meantime, you can reach us on email fourbeerspod at gmail.com. You can find all of our episodes at fourbeers.com, and you can drop us a line there as well if you'd like. If you are enjoying the show, please just do take a second to rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choice. Really helps other people discover the show. Um, Alexa, have I left anything out? Sounds good. Awesome. All right. Well, I've um, poured myself another Corona. You're continuing to drink your <laughs> disgusting cake beer. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah. Yep. So is there anything about your process that you've like changed over time um, as you've like learned to do this better? Yeah. So we've started to um, to try to make our process, I guess, less biased. Um, so one thing that's changed, and we can maybe like get to this later, is that we dropped the GRE like you guys did. Um, and this for us happened during COVID. Um, and then we just didn't reinstitute it. And I don't think that we've decided for sure that this is a permanent change, but um, for now, that's the case. Um, so maybe we can talk about GRE in a little bit. The other things that we've tried to change are that our system used to be such that an applicant could apply, and um, usually applicants indicate people they'd be interested in working with, um, and those are the people who sort of like look closely at the applications. So we have um, people who screen them for whether they meet like the basic requirements. But beyond that, you know, the people who look closely at the applications are people um, with whom the person has indicated they would be interested in working, right? And so, um, yeah, historically it's been the case that maybe, you know, um, one person is like looking closely at this application and, you know, deciding whether or not this person will get invited for an interview or, um, yeah, go further in the process and there's, yeah, maybe some concern that like just one person looking at them and sort of like deciding, okay, this person doesn't have, this person doesn't meet my criterion um, is like not the most sort of like balanced approach. People might be sort of like kicking people out for silly reasons or, you know, um, yeah, whatever. Um, maybe the the like bias is more likely to come into play when we just have one person. Um and so uh, it was formerly the case that if somebody got invited for an interview, they would get feedback from multiple people and things like that. Um, but sometimes with just the applications, it's like not, not many people are looking closely at who is being selected and who is being overlooked. And so now um, we've tried to incorporate that more. Um, so a, a few people in my department have like worked really hard to sort of revamp this, this system so that now... Um, I, the applications are like read in detail by at least two people and they rate the applications um, in these three categories, their academic record, their rec letters, interestingly, um, and their statements. And they're given like uh, ratings of um, green, which is the, the best, and then yellow, which is sort of like maybe there's some reasons to hesitate and red, like there are serious red flags in these. So that's like, first of all, helpful and just like making sure that that some students don't get completely overlooked, um, but also helpful in like allowing us to sort of track the process a little bit more and see, you know, for instance, if we are like consistently bringing in really undiverse groups of people, like where is that happening? Is it like we don't get any applicants or is it that um, we're like rejecting people based at the application stage or is it that they come for an interview and they decide not to come here, like that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, we've tried to be, I guess, a little bit more intentional about tracking things and also, um, more intentional about making sure that like everybody is seeing these applications. If somebody is admitted, are they admitted to work with a specific faculty member? Yes. And is that faculty member paying for part of their stipend? Not necessarily. Okay. So it, I, I like the multiple raters idea, but it seems a little peculiar that like if somebody is applying to work with you, Alexa, that your colleague gets input into whether you should take them or not. Yeah, I think that it's sort of like a 
provides some like a check on that. Um, I mean, I don't think that it's ever worked out in such a way where somebody is like, I'm not interested in this person. And then somebody else is like, sorry, I rated them all green. (laughs) (laughs) They they got all green, so they're accepted. (laughs) Too bad. So sad. Yeah. Um, But as a way to sort of, yeah, like provide some accountability, I guess, to your decisions. Like you're not just like making these decisions in a behind closed doors. Dude, well, so this is really all about, about you. You ran wild and they're like, listen, we can't have Alexa just basically throwing darts. We need some supervision. But, you know, in order to make this politically palatable, I guess it has to be for everybody. Yeah, exactly. So would you, um, you mentioned a couple of changes you would make to your process. Um, Would you reinstitute the GRE? Yes, 100%. And I'm aware that the students don't like it. Um, It's expensive. It's stressful. Uh, and I get all that. That makes sense to me. But I just think it's really useful information, um, and particularly in cases where I might be otherwise sort of in doubt about a student. Um, I think it's super useful to have the GRE scores. Like if it's a less well-known school, for example, um, if I'm not sure from their coursework if they have the quantitative ability that I would want, like having that information can be really helpful. And I realize that it's annoying for people like to have to take this stupid test because sometimes I find it useful to have this information. But those times, like I find it really useful. So I would like to keep requiring it. I'm doubtful about whether we're ever going to bring it back. So we we paused it during the pandemic. Um, and I just think that the where the kind of center of gravity of people here is at is like not wanting to keep it, I think, which is a shame, but you know, I'm not, it's also not a hill I'm going to die on. I just like, if I were dictator, I would hundred percent keep it. So what is the rationale for eliminating it? So, I mean, at UA, I think that the rationale for eliminating it during COVID was like the, the inconvenience and cost of like getting, like taking the GRE. Um, but then, yeah, now we have not, reinstated it. And I think that the main reason that people want to eliminate the GRE, the main reasons are, yes, like the cost. So the cost um, creates a financial barrier. Um, And then also, and then there's like the other sort of like less obvious costs, like the costs of, um, you know, like taking GRE prep classes or things like that. So so I know people would some people would argue that you can like pay to do well on the GRE. I think that some people would disagree with that. Um, but you can certainly pay a lot of money to do a GRE prep course. Um, and the people who offer these courses claim that they can help people. Um, and then the other the other issue with um, the GRE, I think, uh, is that people feel like relying on the GRE makes the um, applicants who are accepted less diverse. So it, it um, is prohibitive to um, a more diverse applicant pool or accepted pool. Um, and I tried, I looked a little bit into some of the research on this and um, yeah, I don't think it's super conclusive, um, but there's, yeah, some research would suggest that um, the GRE is keeping out more diverse uh, students. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so we I should say we we have a full episode um that 
where we talk a lot about the GRE with a friend of the show, uh, Jessica Flake. Um, so we'll drop a link to that in the show notes if you guys want to know more. My understanding is that the effect of um, coaching or prep classes above and beyond just familiarizing yourself with the test format is pretty negligible. Um, so okay. that there might be a small effect, but it's certainly not like, oh, you can just pay to get whatever score that you want. Um, so people say uh, in the anti-GRE argument, um, it is uh, expensive, um, that uh, scores don't predict the things that we want to predict, which which I think mm-hmm. is, is false, um, and then that it's bad for diversity. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm not convinced, uh, that it is bad for diversity, um, particularly because a high GRE score can allow somebody from a less prestigious institution to pop out. Um, so in, in, in that sense, it potentially at least enhances the range of people you'd be willing to consider. It is true, obviously, that there's group differences, like racial and ethnic group differences in average yeah. GRE score, right? But I I don't think that those differences are limited to GRE scores. I think they're, uh, they apply to most indicators that you might look at. Certainly, they apply to GPA. Um, so I don't think that the GRE is, is biased against any groups in the sense of underestimating them. Um, there are group differences in uh, preparedness, let's say, that are reflected by the GRE, but I don't think that's unique to the GRE. So I, d- I don't think that the diversity argument is particularly strong, but it's just one of those things where like, some people are very convinced that it is, and most people are sort of kind of neutral to mildly negative on it. And there's not I, th- I think the people who are pro GRE like me, like I'm not going to make a big fight out of it, right? Like I like it and I would like to keep it, but I can live without it, right? So this isn't something where I'm like I'm planting my flag here and I'm going to, you know, die on this hill. So then the people who are against just end up carrying the day. I think. Do you think that eliminating the GRE is allowing for a more diverse student body? So, like, you you sort of said, like, you think that GPA is also biased um, and that the GRE is predicting useful things. Um, but at, a, at the sort of basic level, do you think that eliminating it increases diversity in grad students? No, or, or at least the, it doesn't necessarily or that retaining it doesn't necessarily harm diversity. I think that if you care about diversity— um, then you can directly care about diversity. So we, um, U of T, uh, has had good success with a program that takes talented, underrepresented uh, undergrads and puts them in a, like a, basically a pre-grad school sort of summer program, right? So like to get people into the pipeline. Or you could say, you know, when we evaluate applicants, in part, what we're going to evaluate is their contribution to diversity. So like, uh-huh. basically making a part of the criteria. So you'd prefer to do that than sort of like trying to use the GRE as a process. It, it seems so roundabout. Yeah, exactly. It's, it seems like, well, if, if you know you really care about diversity, then care about diversity. Don't do this kind of very uh, distantly connected to diversity thing. Yeah, I think that, I mean, 
I definitely agree that the other measures that we have. So when people when people argue for eliminating the the GRE, um, yeah, on the basis that that there are group differences and that it's going to penalize um, some groups compared to others, I think that is yeah an issue with almost all the metrics that we have. Um, so if you think about GPA, I think it has exactly the same problems. Um, I would imagine that GPA is quite highly correlated with the GRE. Do you know the answer to that? Um, I don't know it off the top of my head, but I would be shocked if it if it weren't. Yeah, and then there are things like you know writing even something like a, a research statement or sorry a personal statement. Um, I think like writing an excellent personal statement is like highly um, dependent on having support and knowing how these processes work and having somebody to edit it and things like that. And, um, and then yeah, letters of recommendation again, um, they are going to be influenced by like how much free time you have to devote to working in labs and all of these things have, um, have problems. Uh, so I, I don't fully understand why the, the like particular, Animus is directed at the GRE. I know. I know students don't like taking the GRE, um, and I can understand how it feels like this. You know, you're spending a couple of hours taking this test, and it's supposed to be this holistic measure of your intellectual ability. I can understand how that feels um, like minimizing. I mean, one thing that I don't love about the GRE is that, like, I I teach in my history and systems class about the history of the development of IQ testing. And it's like horribly racist and tied up in the eugenics movement. And like, uh, I mean, I know that's not like the development of the GRE specifically, but this whole like sort of idea of doing like a test that tells you somebody's, I mean, maybe the GRE, we don't frame it necessarily as an IQ test per se, but we sort of, in some ways we do, we see it as this like number that quantifies people's intellectual ability and these like the verbal domain, the quantitative domain. Um, and I just don't love that, the, the sort of general ethos of the GRE. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Like I said, I don't think that it's significantly worse than other, other things that we use. Yeah. Yeah. So this like, tainted origins heuristic like i think that this is so interesting and i i wonder whether this are is, you just trying to undermine my argument by adding heuristic exactly right <laughs> fallacy should i say tainted origins <laughs> fallacy um, i i think it's super super interesting and i do see this like quite a bit um when people make basically political arguments so they will say um well, the filibuster was introduced in order to maintain segregation. Uh-huh. I, I actually don't know whether that's true or not, but like they obviously think that's convincing. We clearly don't have segregation anymore, so does it bear on whether the filibuster right now is something we should keep or not? Like I would say probably not. Um, abortion opponents love to point out that Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, was like a noted eugenicist. Um, and that her kind of explicit motivation for making abortion more available was that undesirable people shouldn't have so many children, right? And mm-hmm. so all of this is just to say, like, people love this as a, a way to evaluate, like, the kind of moral standing of things now is to point at something historically bad that they've been associated with. 
But the same thing that's historically bad about intelligence tests is still bad about them, right? Like the the historic criticism, okay, yes, the like explicit ties to the eugenics movement, okay, maybe that's like not happening now, that connection is not still there. But the idea that intelligence tests were developed by white people and show that white people are smarter than black people is still a criticism of things like the GRE, you know? Uh, I don't know if I buy that. Like A, like plenty of people who work for ETS aren't white. Um, and secondly, you don't know, I, I do actually, as a matter of fact, do you know the demographics? I, I, you know, I have them written down on this, uh, this card. Um, so interestingly, um, from what I've heard, QuantPsych is, um, surprisingly diverse, uh, but that many people who come from a lower SES background, decide not to stay in academia because the money is pretty good working elsewhere. Like you learn skills that are immediately marketable. And so there are folks who go into nonprofits that do testing and assessment because they they pay well. Anyway, that that's such a tangent. But I think more to the point, um, test developers care a lot about bias, right? Um, and they do a lot to weed out items uh, that perform differently across race and gender. So I think of all of the things that you could use um, to select uh, students, the GRE scores are probably the most exhaustively scrutinized for bias against racial minorities. So, okay, I think there actually is an answer to this because I think that Sanjay may have answered this question for me, perhaps on a recorded episode of our own podcast. But if the if the creators of the GRE are like scrupulously eliminating questions that show um, racial bias, then why is there these consistent differences in race performance on the tests? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so the I'm not a psychometrician, but I think the way it works is that the presumption is that the items aren't going to be all that not all of them are going to be biased. So we have to start with some sort of item that we can use to calibrate that we're going to say, okay, we're reasonably certain that this one isn't biased and or that this set isn't biased. And then from that, we can build out and say, okay, given performance on this set of items, uh, are other items looking like they disadvantage certain groups? So you, you need some reference. That's true. Uh, but then I think you can be pretty confident that there's some items that don't show bias just because, you know, I mean, how could they plausibly, right? Like they don't have cultural content in them. Well, I don't know if that's the only way that an item could be biased. Well, I mean, like specifically, this is supposed to be that like people have the same level of ability, but that they're being disadvantaged in demonstrating that ability by the item, right? So how does that I think part of it is also like what we define as a valuable ability. Oh, but okay. Yeah, that's a philosophical question that the test can't answer, right? It's supposed to be, it's supposed to measure, I don't know, like verbal ability. And assuming that we're trying to measure that construct, then we can say, okay, these are items that we think tap the construct of verbal ability that don't seem to have you know, cultural content that ought to differ between groups. So I, it does say, well, we're going we're to like measure this specific thing and 
decide that it's important, right? But like that, that's sort of an assumption of measuring things using standardized tests. I mean, if you're like against that whole idea, then then yeah, you're not going to find that convincing. I mean, I do th- I do think that part of my objection is sort of at the philosophical level, but I also think that like the developers of the GRE. I mean, sure, they're saying like, oh, we're measuring verbal ability. Oh, we're measuring quantitative ability. Um, but in saying that and, and in sort of suggesting that this is a tool that should be used for graduate admissions across the spectrum, right, There, there is an extent to which they're saying, or like the people who are endorsing its use in these contexts are saying, these are universally valued abilities. Like you might not be saying IQ, but you're still saying IQ. Well, I I don't know. I wouldn't think of it as determining somebody's moral worth, but if you have a like a graduate program that where you have to read and write a lot, then somebody who has more demonstrated ability at, you know, verbal skills, that's that's good. Like that's not a judgment about them per se. Like I, like I say, I will, will grant you that I do think that it's like a deeper philosophical objection too, because, you know, I also think that we should leave more room for the way that people writing and, you know, whatever, like use of stats or whatever is valued um, even at the point where they're in grad school. Right. So like, I, I do think that, these things align, right? Like the way that we test these things on the GRE align with like what we expect of people in graduate school. But there's like a broader um, sort of like conceptual level where I'm like, people could be contributing to research and the accumulation of knowledge about psychology um, without doing it in the specific path, you know, in the specific way. Mm. And we're not like selecting those people because we're so used to, seeing contributors to psychology in this like very specific um fitting this very specific mold it's like in in philosophy right people have made the argument that philosophy selects against women for not like using a particular argumentative style and it's like yeah maybe like women don't use that style that has become super valued in philosophy and so one answer to that is like that you should consider valuing other styles, right? But that's like a, a deeper change. Yeah. I mean, not being a philosopher, I can't really say whether that's like key to what they're doing or not. I would say key to what we're doing is reading a lot, being able to write clearly. And then in quantitative psych, which is you know what I think of myself as doing, is being able to do stats and having some like technical and quantitative ability. So I think that's just inherent to what we're trying to do. And I would say like admitting somebody who's a worse reader and writer means that they're not going to be as good at doing research, at least at first. They're going to be starting at a disadvantage, right? I still think that that's a kind of a narrow definition of how somebody could like uh, hypothetically contribute to our knowledge of psychology. Like we just have this very scripted idea of what it takes for someone to be... um, yeah, a psychological researcher that 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 entails a very specific kind of writing, a very st- specific kind of quantitative skill that um, is used for a specific type of quantitative analysis. Um, but I I don't I think that's narrow. 
You know, I think that's like what we were taught also. Yeah. Well, okay. So like I could imagine somebody who's like a qualitative researcher and is like, I don't care about quantitative ability because I'm doing qualitative stuff, right? But like, what are the other kinds of quantitative ability? Like if people are going to be doing regressions, then right. Like what, what other kind of quantitative ability is like? I mean, my mind goes first to things like qualitative work. Okay. I mean, that's fair. It's just not what I do. Right. So like if, if they're working with me, they're going to be running regressions. And so they need to be able to like do some math and programming. Right. Yeah. No, I understand that. I mean, it's not about you. You will. Oh, you're saying more broadly. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, maybe like we, I, I mean, I, I think it's totally uh, a good conversation for another day about the extent to which like we derive a lot of, um, credibility from being a quantitative discipline and whether we actually like whether that's uh entirely honest given our level of doing things right quantitatively but like i i mean that would yeah. be a big shift for the field right if we're like oh yeah we're not going to we're not going to try and demonstrate you know statistical differences we are just going to like tell stories or interview people I think that a lot of our kind of like popular credibility comes exactly from from that. Um, right, but our undeserved credibility. <laughs> yeah, but I mean the reading and writing though. Like, okay, that all right, reading and writing. You can't That's get rid point. of those. Like, whether you're doing the math or not, you have to be able to read and write. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, okay. I think reading and writing are important. <laughs>